If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke chapter 14. Some of you may know the name James Montgomery Boyce. For those of you that don't, he was a Presbyterian minister who was well known for his expository preaching at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. His sermons were good and lasting and true enough that they have been bound into a multi-volume commentary set, which are even sold still today. But more than his preaching, Boyce also served as the chairman on the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. He was also a founding member of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, both important organizations in Protestant Christianity in the last 50 years. Now, why am I telling you all this about Boyce? Because I want you to understand what it would have been like when news went out in 1999 that he had cancer and in 2000 when he passed away, and there were so many wanting to get to 10th Pres in Philadelphia that they might not only pay their respects to this great minister of the Word, but that they might give glory to God for his ministry. It fell to his associate minister, Pastor Philip Ryken, to plan the service, and in doing so, he determined that there should be television monitors set up in overflow rooms throughout the church that only those speaking in the service would be assigned seats on the platform, and otherwise there would be no special seating for any other guest. All of it was simply first come, first serve in the main auditorium, and then into the overflow rooms. It was just too much to worry about and the planning to do otherwise. The service went well, but after the service, Riken received an angry letter from a family They had come in too late to sit in the main auditorium and had to sit in one of the overflow rooms in the church's basement. They believed that they deserved better than that and said that they would not be coming back to worship at the church anymore. Now that letter reveals the kind of heart that Jesus is going to talk about in the passage we're going to look at today. The last time we were in chapter 14, we saw Jesus being invited to a Pharisee's house and immediately healing a man that was there at that house, a man in desperate physical need, and yet at the same time confronting those that were there who were seeking to actually trap Jesus by having this man there to be healed. There was a, a hardness of heart. And if that was not awkward enough for the beginning of this dinner party, as they now sit down to eat, Jesus sees the way in which they all clamor for the best seats. And before the food is served, Jesus takes it upon himself to once again offer a correction for the prideful hearts of those in attendance. And in doing so, he tackles this perennial issue, namely that of a prideful heart that longs to be recognized by men. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this as we begin reading in verse 7 of Luke chapter 14. Luke tells us, Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move higher up. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
And he said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man who once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I may have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets, the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways then, the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of God. In these verses, Jesus is pointing out both the folly of pride and the virtues of humility. Specifically, Jesus, you remember, is talking in the context of the kingdom of God. That's what he's been talking about. And even right in the middle, this man makes this comment about those who are in the kingdom will be blessed to dine with God. And so he is telling us not just generically about pride and folly, though he is doing that, but very specifically he is telling us here, this is what it looks like in part to be my disciple. When you think about ambition, ambition, when you think about glory, when you think about prominence and prestige, this is how my disciples are supposed to live. This is how those in the kingdom of God are supposed to think and live in light of such things. And what Jesus is showing, in fact, that very sobering warning that he ends with shows us that a failure to brace, embrace the kind of selfless life that Jesus is depicting here will actually keep us from the kingdom altogether. It will be pride that shuts us out from the salvation that God freely offers, leaving us to be justly condemned for our sins. So what should we do this morning? How should we live in light of what Jesus has said? How do we go about pursuing a life that is others-oriented as Jesus envisions those in his kingdom to be like? Well, I think we should do three things based on what Jesus says. First of all, I think we should strive for sincere humility. We should strive for sincere humility. I say sincere humility because there is a kind of fake humility, isn't there, that our culture excels in. No, no, you, you first, when all the while we, we crave to be first. But Jesus is here saying there should be a sincerity to the humility that should mark his people. Luke says he told a parable to those who were invited. When? When he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now, if this feast was set up in a typical way that it would have in the first century in this culture, all of the tables would have been aligned in a, in a U-shape. And, and at the bottom of that U, at, the, at the, the head of the tables, as it were, would have been the host. And those that would have sat on his right and on his left would have had the places of most prominence. And likewise, as the table seating was laid out, those closest to the host would have been seen as more important than those farther away. 
Now, when we think about this kind of seating arrangements, uh, this is not isolated to Israel in Jesus' day. We see this both in the Roman culture of his day. We see it in cultures before that. We even see it in cultures all throughout time up until today. Some of you are fans of shows like Downton Abbey, and when they have those formal dinners, what do they have? They have specific places where those guests must sit based upon social standing and sometimes to avoid bad conversation at dinner. Uh, there, is, there is a certain wisdom there, but there's also a highlighting of the prestige of the guests. But on a more common basis, on a basis, frankly, that is often more hurtful, or at least has been for most of us, that have not been the most uh, popular of people, think about the jockeying for position at the school lunchroom that takes place every day of the school year. Where you sit says something about your social standing at that school. So we see this all over the place. And here Jesus is using this kind of thing to tell us about what life should be like in the kingdom. In fact, he specifically says what we see taking place here of this, of this seeking out the best places, that, that shouldn't be the way that my people think. That shouldn't be the way that my disciples live. So instead, he says they should avoid self-promotion. They should avoid self-promotion. In verse 7, it says, When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So here's the parable, here's the, the illustration that Jesus is giving. Imagine what this scene would have looked like. The guests are moving about in the room, they're, they're talking to people, trying to make their way to who? The most important person in the room at that time, the host of the party. So you're saying hi to this person, t telling a joke, and then you're, you're kind of moving your way slowly towards the host over in the corner. And you're saying hi to this person, and you're doing whatever, because what you hope will happen is that you will be able to stand next to the host in conversation when the steward of the kitchen comes out and says, the meal is ready, and you will be in the middle of a conversation that will not be finished. He'll certainly want to continue it. So he will say, come with me. And he will take you by the hand and he will lead you down and set you at his right or at his left in one of those seats of prominence. And everyone will be able to know you are the most important guest that is there. That was the hope that would have taken place. Perhaps you're more shrewd than that. Perhaps you realize you, you're not really wanting to get the, the right or the left exactly because what you know will happen is people will think ill of you. They'll, they'll think that you are trying to maneuver your way into that position. So what you decide to do is maybe move a seat down one or two and just kind of hover behind that chair. Remember, these tables would have been low on the ground, barely a foot off, and there would have been cushions or very low to the level couches, not chairs like this. Everyone would have been reclining and laying down. So you would have been standing up perhaps buy a seat kind of close to the host. So people would come, you'd be having conversations, and in your mind, when the steward came out, you would just be seated right where you were standing, which seemed most natural, most easy, and therefore still have a place of prominence. But Jesus says, in the midst of all this thinking and planning about being seen as important, imagine what happens when you sit down there's been a group gathered there around that host, and when they come down, there's not enough room for that, that group to sit. So the host looks at you and says, can, can, would you mind moving down so, so, so these friends can, can sit here? And suddenly you, you just feel mortified that you're being asked to move 
from this position of prominence down lower. Because when you get up and look, there's already somebody sitting next to you and next to you and next to you, and the only seat left is the one at the very end. Least in prominence, last in food. This is not the place you want it to be. You'd be angry for being outplayed and embarrassed at the loss of face. That kind of anxious maneuvering, that kind of worship or reputation, Jesus is zeroing in on that and saying, just forget about that stuff. That's not what you're to be about in the kingdom of God. That's not what the kingdom is about. That's not what you, if you're going to be my disciples, are to be about. And that, that is a powerful word today because we play those games in so many ways today, so many more sophisticated ways today. We live in an age of endless self-promotion. Uh, given the use of social media, I think it's fair to say we live in an age of unprecedented self-promotion. And this is coming from someone who, who is on social media. Sometimes it's subtle. We, we post and we tweet carefully crafted lines of 140 characters to artificially define ourselves for the world. It's not really who we are, but it's who we want people to think we are. Other times it's more obvious. Politicians have websites devoted to highlighting their victories, and yet they somehow fail to post about their defeats. It was even revealed in recent weeks that many of the edits to Wikipedia actually originate in the staff offices of Washington, D.C. You literally have people working for congressmen and women in the White House rewriting history, deleting references to anything that would tarnish the reputation of elected officials, or selectively presenting topics or plans that would push a political perspective or agenda. That's on both sides of the aisle this has been happening. If you're really interested to see that, there's actually a Twitter account that automatically tells you when someone from a congressional staff office tweets something and points you to the page on what they changed. Isn't technology amazing? But, you know, the church can be tempted to do the very same thing. As someone who likes to read blogs and articles, I always regret reading the comments. Occasionally there's something good there, but more often than not, it is a pulling of ignorance but when it comes to this, I'm always amazed and chagrined how many pastors will comment on an article just so they can drop in a link that points people back to their own site or something that they have done. It is a means of self-promotion. And I have to be honest and say, I can't tell you how many times I've thought about hitting delete on my own blog because it is so so easy to be caught up in this culture in which we swim of wanting to make ourselves look important and to, to force our way up the ladder of prominence in the culture in which we live. And yet Jesus is looking at all of that and says, just stop. That's, that's not what we're about. That's not what drives us. Avoid that kind of thing. If, and if we're going to strive for sincere humility, we need to listen to him and obey. Moreover, in the pursuit of humility, we should not only avoid self-promotion, but also wait for prominence. Wait for prominence. Jesus says, do not sit down in a place of honor, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. Why? So that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So once again, in the context of this party, Jesus says, don't try and finagle your way to the front. Start at the end of the line. 
So start at the very last table and plop yourself down there. And what may happen, it's not guaranteed, but what may happen is the host will then say, hey, you don't need to be down there. Move up, but move closer to me. Jesus is saying, rather than trying to create an artificial sense of importance or prominence for yourself, let those around you recognize what may actually be there. Let those around you who can see both your gifts and your foibles decide whether or not you deserve to be exalted to prominence. And of course, Jesus is not just thinking about dinner here. He's not just giving you social graces to think about. He is using these illustrations to point to a larger principle for life. Verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's no more true than when it comes to God himself. If pride is welling up in our hearts, God has no problem humbling you for your own good. For your own good. That might come through physical means. You, 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 I remember a pastor telling me one time because he had been uh, sick to the point that he had to go to the hospital for a few days, uh, going in to, to pray with him, and he said, you know what? He says, sometimes you just get too big for your britches and God has to knock on your back and, and wake you up a little bit. God has no problem using physical means, whether it's poverty, whether it's illness, whether it's the, the loss of, of, of something to humble us if we are proud. That doesn't mean that every time something bad happens, he's humbling us. Don't go away from that. But what I'm saying is God has no problem doing those kinds of things because he is more concerned with our godliness than our greatness. He's more, you can, that, that's something you can tweet. God is more concerned with our godliness than our greatness. Jesus says here that those who seek to exalt themselves will be humbled by God. But those who humble themselves, those who acknowledge, I, I am not the best, there is always someone greater, and specifically to God, I have great need of you, God, then those are the ones that will find themselves exalted by God. Thinking about eternal things, about the kingdom itself, as Jesus is obviously concerned with, if we think that we are able to stand before God on the final day on the basis of the worth of our gifts or our service, our life before Him, serving in whatever power and strength and righteousness that we've had, we are sadly mistaken. But if we're willing to sincerely admit our need, God is more than willing to give us grace. Not only grace for salvation, but grace for service in his kingdom. And that might bring us to prominence, but it might not. But it might not. Either way, he is saying greatness, exaltation, prominence is not something for us to grasp hold of. We are to allow others to move us up, to call us up, to put us in places of prominence. Ultimately, we trust in God to exalt us to the level that he thinks we deserve. Now, does that mean that we, we get rid of all ambition? Absolutely not. One, one of the most humble men that I've ever read about said this statement, attempt great things for God. He had ambition. He had drive. When those around him were saying, you're stupid, you're foolish. He said, no, no, this is what God commands and I must do it. You're just a shoemaker. What do you know? I know that this is the Bible and people need to hear it. So I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to go to India and I'm going to tell anybody who I find there about the gospel. That was William Carey. The, the point is our ambition is not for, our ambition should not be self-serving. It should not be self-grandizing. It should be saying, how can I, knowing that all that I have, all that I am comes from God, how can I best glorify him in doing great things? and even difficult things. That, that's where true godly ambition meets with the call for humility. 
And so J.C. Ryle, a pastor of another age, wisely writes this, The man who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and His infinite majesty and holiness, knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. Therefore, let us today strive for humility, remembering Christ, and therefore avoiding self-promotion, waiting for prominence by God's own hand. Secondly, secondly, if we're to live the way that God wants us to, let us serve with selfless generosity. Let us serve with selfless generosity. Jesus had some words for the guests of the party, and now he looks to the host. And he says, I have some words for, for you as well. Verse 12, he said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now at first blush, you're thinking, I don't like Jesus very much because I like having dinner with my friends. I like having dinner with my family. I like inviting my neighbors over. Is Jesus against those things? No. How do you know? Well, read the rest of the Gospels. I mean, Jesus enjoys being with his friends and family at mealtime. He goes over to Lazarus and Mary and Martha's all the time. I, I, I love the juxtaposition. In, uh, in John's gospel, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then John has a, a digression to tell us about all of the plans and plots to kill him. And the next time you come back to Jesus, he's at Mary and Martha's house eating a big meal. And my comment is, if I was dead for three days, I'd be hungry too. And, and so he's there re rejoicing people that he, but he loves. He goes to, to Peter's house. He heals his mother-in-law. And what happens? It says that she gets up and begins to serve them. She says, hey, let's eat. Let's eat. I'm better. I was sick. I'm well. Let's, let's have some food. So what is Jesus against here? He's against this, the attitude of payback. Not like you did something bad to me. I want to do something bad to you. No, I'm going to be nice to you knowing you will be nice to me. And, and, and I have a little bit of prominence, but you have more prominence. So if I'm nice to you, then the prominence you, that, that, that what you do nice to me will not only lift me up because I am the object of your attention, but may in fact trump what I gave. So if I spend 50 bucks on you, you might spend 75 or 100 bucks on me. When I think about who to invite over for dinner, Jesus says if I just invite someone well off or at least as well off as myself, I expect they will return the favor to me as well. At the very least, they will be prepared to help me out because of the hospitality I've shown them. And Jesus, that's the, that's the wrong motive for serving people. That, that is the wrong motive for having people over to your home and serving. Our aim should be selfless generosity. The principle that was, that was given to the promise through the promise in Abraham, as well as to Israel and to the church, is this, I serve using the abundance of resources God has given to me, not that I might achieve prominence or be blessed, but that I might bless others. So if you've been given much, then God expects that you will steward that well, that you might serve much and bless much, not get more by how you serve. So so how, how do we live that way? How do we live with selfless generosity? Well, Jesus gives us two practical things. The first is this. We need to look past those who can repay. Look past those who can repay. This is how Jesus begins. Don't serve with self-interested motivation. Think about how tempting it would be if you're the host of this meal not to have the intention of serving those around you but seeing this meal as an investment in your future frankly, this whole passage, when I first began reading it and thinking about it, reminded me of our trip earlier in the Philippines this year. And 
um, as you know from our reports and, and the fact that we've been there before, that most of the pastors that we meet there are humble, godly men uh, just trying to faithfully do two things. Introduce Christ to those who need to hear about Him for the first time and care and love and teach those that are believers already. But every once in a while, just like here, you find a dud. And there was one guy in particular that we were... Uh, it was actually the only night that June wasn't with us because his daughter was graduating from high school. And so he sent us, uh, sent us over to this other place with some other people. And we were going to this fellow's church and we met at his office first. And uh, we had a nice um, re refreshment after our long drive on another long drive over to his church out of, out of the city, out into the village. But while we were there, he was telling us about how he, uh, I don't remember all the details of how it happened, but he had this relationship with the governor of the province. So uh, a Rick Snyder type but in the Philippines, province in Manila there, um, he, he had a relationship with him where now he, would, he was going and basically he was like his personal chaplain and he would do Bible studies with him and he would go over to his house and would sometimes be with his family or his staff. And um, he said uh, very authoritatively, I will call him and, we, and you will meet him tonight. I said, oh, okay, that, that, sounds, that sounds nice. And so the, the plan was that as he called and his people talked to their people or however it worked, that we would go to the, his church uh, actually, it turned out Jason and I both preached that night. It was a double header, and um, we should do that some some morning, right? People would really no. Okay, I'm getting the I'm getting the no on that one. <laughs> um, we were supposed to go and preach, and then at 8:30 we would arrive at the governor's house for this Bible study. Well, we got there and we were told the governor can't see you at 8:30. It'll be 10:30. Now he's the governor, right? But Jason and I have been like on four hours of sleep three nights in a row, and we're kind of tired. And frankly, he wasn't my governor, and uh, I was glad for this guy, but I didn't want to be there. But this guy was insistent. No, I can get you to see the governor. We're going to stay. Well, 10.30 turned into 11.45, and after about 30 minutes of being asleep at this guy's table, I'm aroused and say, you know, he's here. We got to go. You're teaching the devotional. And so I literally have a leg that's asleep, it won't work, so I'm, I'm doing this number, trying to get in, and the pastor's shooting me on, and we're all getting down there, I'm trying to rub my eyes dry, because I've been sleeping under this fan, and it's all discombobulated, and the, the thing that comes into my mind was a sermon I had just preached a couple weeks before, and it was about Mary and Martha and the priority of discipleship at Jesus' feet rather than even good things in life. And that, that was not meant to be a swipe at him for the lateness of the hour or anything else. My, I think what God put in my mind was, you are a person of power, Mr. Governor. Are you just giving lip service to God? Or are you genuine in your faith? And how will that faith be worked out in your policies? So I proceeded to give this devotional, and I ended rather abruptly. I, I ended because I wanted the application to hang there, and I wanted it to hang over his head and have him think about this question ringing in his ear. Was it essential for him as a Christian to be learning and to be shaped by Christ, or was the, the voice of his master being drowned out by even the good plans and decisions and policies that he had to work for in government? The question only hung for a few seconds, and that pastor immediately jumped in. And so, well, it's obvious that that's the, the kind of lifestyle the governor has. I mean, just, ju just look at what we're doing here at this Bible study. He, he rescued the governor from what God may have been doing in his heart. Now, what was, it became clear as Jason and I processed this later, this guy enjoyed, this pastor enjoyed being in a place of prominence. He enjoyed having 
this relationship with the, the governor, from the way and the attitude in which it was all about him introducing us to the governor, from the fact that while we were waiting from, from 8.30 to 11.45, that food, nice food kept being brought out for us and, and he kept in, enjoying that, the way that, that he expected respect from other pastors because he was the governor's chaplain. He was not concerned that perhaps he would have a godly influence in this man's life and therefore the city in which he lived, he enjoyed the reciprocity that came from being associated with this man in power. And Jesus says that's not what selfless generosity looks like. The man did not stay up till 11.45 at night and then have to walk 20 minutes to his car and then drive an hour home because he loved the governor or Christ. He did it because he was self-serving. He knew he was getting something out of it. That's the opposite of what Jesus says our life should look like. That's not why we today should serve those around us. But understand again, it's easy to think that way because that's the culture in which we live. I'm going to befriend my neighbor so I can use their snowblower in the winter. Right? Isn't that how we think? Or I, I want to befriend this neighbor because they got a pool and it's going to be a hot one this summer. I want to go over to the pool. I want to be nice to my boss a couple weeks before review time. So that way he goes easy on me. I want to get to know this woman over here because she has a very prominent circle of friends and I want to be introduced to those people. That's how we think in our culture. And it's so easy even as Christians to think that way, to, to think manipulative about getting back instead of simply giving. Even service to God, ministry to Christ can be nothing more than a self-serving machination of repayment and advancement. But Jesus says, if you're following my teaching, if you're going to be part of the kingdom, even following his example, then we need to serve with selfless generosity. And in doing so, we not only have to look past those who are going to repay, but secondly, we need to look for those in real need. We need to look for those in real need. Jesus says in verses 13 and 14, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. Jesus says, here's the evidence of selfless generosity. Serve those who can't serve you. If you want to build humility and generosity, then do something nice for someone who has no chance of paying you back. I mean, you just know. I mean, that, that's what all these people have in common. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, they can't repay you. They have nothing to offer you. They cannot advance your social status. They don't have resources for you to use. Nothing. So you helping them, you serving them is simply an act of humble, selfless, generous love towards them. That's what Jesus is saying here. And yet notice the promise that he gives. Not only will you be blessed in this life, but you'll be blessed in the life to come. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, it doesn't mean you give somebody 10 bucks now, you're going to get 100 bucks in heaven. It doesn't work that way. I guarantee you hear that on television. Okay? You, you, you hear that about planting the seed of faith. Okay? Uh, the seed of faith is the gospel that needs to be believed. Okay? Let, let's, just, let's just be clear on that. All right? So, 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 because you can turn what Jesus says right back in the opposite of what he's trying to say. What, you know what Paul quotes Jesus? We don't have it in the Gospels, but Paul quotes him, giving evidence that he saw the resurrected Christ and, and was discipled directly by him. He says, here's what Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You can find that in his letter to the Corinthians. This is part of the blessing that comes to us, knowing that we have been used by God to serve others. So the question comes down to, well, let me back up and say, okay, so what kind of, what kind of reward is he talking about, John? 
repay the resurrection of the just? What is that going to look like? I don't know. I don't have any idea because the Bible doesn't ever tell us. You know, we're, we're, talked, we're, we're talking about crowns of, of, of life, which I think speak to salvation and some kind of rewards. But then when you get to Revelation, you get to the end of the book, the, the, the Savior himself comes out, the conquering uh, lion who once was a lamb and died for our sins. And we take off all our crowns and throw them at his feet in honor and glory and praise. So I don't know what it looks like. And here's the question that I have to ask myself. Am I serving for the reward that comes and goes in this life? or the one that ultimately comes from the hand of God and lasts for eternity. Let us honestly check our motivations and examine the desires of our heart because what we want to do is honor Christ through our selfless generosity. Finally, I think Jesus directs us as those seeking to live as his disciples in his kingdom that we must be able to see with spiritual clarity. That we must be able to see with spiritual clarity clarity. Now, what am I talking about there? What are we seeing exactly? Here's what we need to see from the verses that follow, verses 15 and 24. God himself sets the example for how we ought to live. And if we fail to accept his invitation to fellowship with him, then we will, we will have a life that results in spiritual disaster. Jesus has done what he is good at, getting at the heart of those around him. I mean, can you imagine being at, a, at any kind of a formal meal where the, where you know, the guests start shooting you down, pointing out your sins. I mean, you know, I envision crickets chirping. I don't know what kind of, I don't know if they even have cricket, crickets in, in Palestine, but there you go. Uh, and you're, you're just thinking, um, you know, what's going to happen here? And, and Luke says this guy, I think well-intentioned, tries to kind of bail things out and keep things going. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, well, blesses everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What is he saying? Jesus just said, invite the poor, the lame, the blind. And he said, well, well sure, anybody who's in the kingdom, they're going to be blessed. Well, okay, true enough. But Jesus says, basically, what makes you think you're going to be in the kingdom? See, you have this assumption. Everybody there has the assumption. We're in. And of course, it'd be great if all these other poor people get to come in too. Jesus says, let's stop. Let's think about what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Let's think about what the, the banquet feast at the end time is going to be like. So he says, verse 16, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready. Now we need to pause here and understand. You've got two invitations, right? Verse 16, he had invited many. Verse 17, then he goes to those who had been invited and invites them again, come, everything is ready. And what we understand culturally is that in Jesus' day, that's how parties worked, okay? You had two invitations. A couple days before the party, someone would go around and say, hey, the party is Thursday, uh, are you coming? It's going to be a wild shindig, it's going to be great. The wine will flow freely, can you make it? And they say, sure, put me on the guest list, sounds great. Uh, love your master, can't wait to see him. And, and he goes through and says, we'll say, no, I, 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 can't, I can't do it. So, so that steward comes back, a servant comes back, and he says, okay, he, here's the guest list. Here's who's coming, here's not going to come. And so the master of the kitchens looks at that and says, great, I think we're going to need about 15 lambs. And they go to work. Uh, baking bread, uh, getting the wine together, putting the food. And then on the day of the celebration, when all that food is prepared, the servant goes out to say, the food's ready, it's time for the party to start. You don't just show up when you want. And at that point, everybody says, great, let, we'll be there in just a few minutes. And they, you know, put their fancy sandals on or whatever they do, and then they're going to go to the party, okay? So the invitation has been issued. 
Jesus is saying to this party. Then the people come up, the second invitation has come, and suddenly nobody wants to show up. Now, understand, this is the context of the kingdom of God. This is not just a, a physical party that Jesus is talking about. He is talking about salvation. He's talking about the invitation that God gives for all to come and to dine with him forever in fellowship because of the salvation and forgiveness that he offers. Notice what kind of invitation it is. It is wide and the benefits are large. Jesus says this is a great banquet and many were invited. God doesn't hold back. God doesn't say, well, I'm not inviting them and I'm not inviting them. No, this is a huge thing. There's enough for everyone. That's the point that Jesus is making here. The problem is people don't come because they lack spiritual clarity. They cannot see what is right before them. They are blinded to what God is doing, and we must avoid the same mistake. Therefore, we must first beware misplaced priorities. We must beware misplaced priorities. The day of the feast comes, the servant goes, the second invitation, what happens? Luke says in verse 18, but, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another says, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go examine them. Please have, me ex- please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, what, what do we notice about all these excuses? None of them are sinful. I mean, nobody says, well, you know what? I actually got to go murder my neighbor. So I, I'm going to be busy cleaning up the mess. Or, you know what? I have to go steal away my neighbor's husband tonight so I can't come. Or I want to go count my money for the 30th time and give it worship like mammon. I mean, no, it's nothing like that. Uh, It's nothing. These are not sinful activities, but at the same time, they are foolish in light of what is being offered. They're also, I mean, just a bit silly, right? I mean, who buys a field without looking at it? Who buys five cows without inspecting them first? What are you going to get when you show up? I mean, this is not, you know, uh, those nut jobs that go and buy sealed up containers having no idea what's in them. Um, you know, there could be a dead body in there for all you know. You, what, what are you doing? What are you thinking wasting your money like that? What about this last excuse? I married a wife. Good for you. He doesn't even say, please have me excused. You just close the door. I can't come. I mean, what, what kind of a guy marries a woman and doesn't want to go show her off whenever he can? Take her to the party. Look at this Look at this wonderful wife I have. I mean, think about this. This is massive date night on somebody else's dime. What are you, an idiot? You take her to the party. <laughs> I mean, who buys a house or five cars and you don't go see it first? All these things are ridiculous because they're just excuses. They're just excuses. They're not real reasons why these people cannot come. Remember, all these people had already accepted the first invitation. This is the day of the party. They're making the excuses. So they said, yeah, sure, we'll come. Sounds like a great time. But now they've lost interest. And there's no excuse for their misplaced priorities. In fact, it would have been incredibly insulting to the first century host. And that's, that's why he gets angry at the response. I mean, to be honest, this is the kind of thing that would start clan wars. And of course, Jesus' point here is about eternal things, isn't it? We've seen it before. We've seen this passage. Verse 14 and 15 makes it clear. These people think that they're part of the kingdom. These people think that they're already going to the banquet, that they have salvation with God. But Jesus says, you don't because you're rejecting me. God's own son. I'm the one who gives you the kingdom. And when you turn away me, then you're turning away God. They're saying like the people in the parable, we don't want that. 
we'd rather do our own thing. We'd rather have our own plans. We'd rather, we'd rather have our own way of religion. You see, the, the, the Jewish people had received the first invitation to the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. And now, now Jesus, God's own son, has come with the second invitation. The kingdom is here. The food is being prepared. The banquet is being laid out. It is time to come and fellowship and feast with your God. And they say, no thanks. No thanks. They don't want the feast of God's salvation because they've become blinded to what it really is. They have their own ideas about what it is. And Jesus' message does not match up, so they allow their misplaced priorities to lead them to reject the invitation. And in doing so, they're rejecting salvation itself. That's the point that Jesus is making here. We have to say, what about us? We have to beware our own misplaced priorities as well. Some of us have heard the call of salvation and we refuse to come because so many other things are in the way. We've got ambitions. We've got a lifestyle that we like and we just think, I don't want to give those things up. Friends, don't make the same mistake as these religious people did who thought they had something but they never did. They thought they knew God. They thought they had his salvation. They thought they were going to be at the kingdom but their misplaced priorities kept them from actually having real faith in God. And so we not only need to be aware of our misplaced priorities, but more positively, we need to behold God's saving promises. Look into the text and behold God's saving promises. Jesus says all these excuses come in, so the servant comes and reports these things to the master. And the master of the house gets angry, and he says to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The servant said, sir, what have you come in? It has been done and there's still room. And he says, then go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled, filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He ends with that note of judgment. These that rejected the invitation, those of you here in this room who are rejecting Christ's word, that's what he's saying to his fellow Jews, his brothers that he loves, you're not going to be in the kingdom. You will not experience salvation if you reject me. But notice who the invitation goes out to then. The same kind of people that Jesus said we should invite and take care of. Those that are utterly helpless and can pay nothing back. Here was the reason why the Pharisees and these religious leaders rejected the invitation. They thought they could make it on their own. They thought that they were, that they were well, that they were strong, that they were healthy, and they were rich. And what Jesus says is, if you believe that about yourself spiritually, you're never going to get to God. But for those who know they are poor, they are crippled, they are blind, they are lame, they have nothing to offer God. It's like, God, I have nothing. I just need mercy. I just need you to look at me and forgive me for my sins, lest I perish in hell. He says to that person, God says, come in. Come in. Of course I'll forgive you. Of course I'll forgive you. Why? Because I have sent my son who embodies this very message. Think of all the things that this passage has said about humility, about generosity. Think about all these things. And Jesus himself has embraced these things. He is the embodiment of them. Most of us know well Philippians 2. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. 
He comes in humility. He is king, but he becomes a servant. He comes with generosity. He gives out his very life for sinners who deserve hell. And what happens? Those who humble themselves will be exalted. For his faithfulness to God's plan, for his obedience to God's word, Christ is exalted back to life from the dead and given the position of highest honor, the very object of our worship this morning. See, the kingdom is, in, is offered to those incapable of saving themselves, to those that have been abused and addicted, to those that sin and struggle and feel shame for their life. Jesus says, the kingdom is ready for you. The kingdom is not for the godly, it's for the ungodly. Because in the kingdom, they will be changed. They will experience forgiveness and life in my son. That's what God is saying to us this morning. Through Jesus' death for us, we receive forgiveness and life and the glory of being part of the fellowship of God's family. I began by talking about the funeral of James Montgomery Boyce and the letter that Riken received afterwards. But I want to back up and tell you about what happened during the funeral itself. Remember he said that all the special guests, save those that were going to be on the platform as part of the service, had no special seats. But those that were going to be speaking, reading scripture, praying in the service, there were seven chairs on the platform. Here's while Riken explains what happened. Seven men were on the platform. All of my elders and superiors, including the great Christian leaders like Reverend Eric Alexander, Dr. C. Everett Koop, and Dr. R.C. Sproul. There were seven men, but only three chairs, as well as some less prominent and less comfortable seat at the back of the platform. Since I was opening the service, I was in charge of handing out the seating assignments. Needless to say, I took a back seat to the others. Yet to the credit of their humility, those worthy men insisted that I should sit up front. As they invited me to take the best seat in the house, they essentially said what the host said in the parable of the wedding places, friend, move up higher. That's what the kingdom is about. Seeking humility and service, counting others more significant than ourselves, knowing God will exalt the humble. This morning, therefore, let us remember that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, let us submit ourselves to God, accepting his gracious invitation rather than running away in our own direction. Let us draw near to God through faith in Christ, knowing that when we do, he will draw near to us. Father, that is a sweet and precious promise from your word, that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So I pray, God, regardless of where we're at, if we've been a Christian for decades, or perhaps we're here and we know nothing about Christ except what we've heard these last few minutes, that we would draw near to you by faith in your Son. That we would see our great need of you and come to you knowing all we have is Him. All we have is your Son who issues the invitation, who died for our sins, and who lives righteous and exalted that we might be in fellowship with you. Father, may some hear that message and come drawing near for salvation. And God, may some of us hear that message and draw near with sorrowful repentance, knowing that our lives have for too often been consumed with pride and self-serving attitudes. God, may we come knowing that you will forgive and more than that, you will cleanse, that we might truly experience a life of humility a life of generosity, a life of clarity about the priorities that you yourself have displayed and set the example for our lives.
God, we ask all these things in Jesus' sweet and precious name. Amen.